Revelation 21, we're going to read 1 through 8 and then skip down to verse 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. You ever read a book or be watching a movie? You're in it, and then the ending just ruins everything? Like La La Land just ruined it? I Am Legend was that way. I felt like The Wizard of Oz was that way. I feel like anything by M. Night Shyamalan is that way. (laughs) On the other hand, there are many stories where the ending leaves you in awe. Maybe the way the story resolves a key conflict, you're like, that was meaningful and not cliched. Like so many stories are like, oh, I know how this is going to, like every Hallmark movie, does not have a good ending because it doesn't have a good beginning and it doesn't have a good middle. You know, you know how the entire thing is going to go before you watch it, right? But you see endings, you're like, that was just honest and realistic and didn't try to tie up all the loose ends or I didn't see that coming. Well, each of our lives is a story and our stories are held within a greater story that God has been telling since the beginning of time as we know it and will continue to tell forever. In this short series, we've talked about this story. And I want you to see that these six building blocks that I just prayed about are not just independent, a jumbled collection of distinct things. They really fit together. We started this series five weeks ago or six weeks ago talking about origin. Like, where did we come from? And we went to identity. Therefore, who am I? 
And we went to purpose, like what is, the, what is the meaning and the purpose of my life? And we talked about morality. How do we know right from wrong? How does anyone know right from wrong? And last week we talked about pain, like looking at this world, looking at our lives. Why is there so much suffering? And today we talk about destiny, like where are we ultimately headed? And I let off the way I let off because many worldviews actually paint a picture of an ending, a final chapter, as it were, that make total nonsense out of everything that came before it. It just doesn't correlate to the life that we're meant to experience, the life that God made us for. So I read this a couple weeks ago, but it's like Bertrand Russell saying, all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and therefore the only firm foundation for life is, get this, unyielding despair. Like he's coaching you to live in despair because he's like, at the end of the day, there's going to be nothing and nothing that you did, whether it was good or bad, will have any meaning or any lasting purpose at all. That's quite a contrast to how I ended last week, not that you remember it, but I ended by quoting Dostoevsky, in the brothers Karamazov, where he says he believes that in the world's finale, at the moment of final or eternal harmony, something will happen that's so good, it will make sense of everything that came before. And the pain will not only be healed, but it'll be put into a perspective where it's like, ah, that's why God did that story that way. Okay, so who is right? Does the story end with this kind of meaningless and dis- meaninglessness and despair like Bertrand Russell and the secular humanists, or does it end in something really beautiful and eternal? So I've got four questions this morning. Where do we go? What will that be like? How does the story end? And so what? So where do we go? And I'm just going to give you three views, two of them very quickly. Um, the, the view that I just gave you from Bertrand Russell is a view known as annihilationism or extinction. It's just simply humans are mortal. Our entire nature, like we live, we appear, we live this brief life, and when we die, that's it because the body is really all there is. The idea is that when your body ceases to function, there is no you that continues on. Epictetus was a Greek Stoic philosopher a couple generations after Jesus. He painted this picture this way. He said, when you kiss your child or your brother or your friend, never give away entirely to your affections nor free reign to your imagination, but curb it, restrain it. Remind yourself likewise that what you love is mortal, that what you love is not your own. What harm is there while you are kissing your child to murmur softly, tomorrow you will die? Okay, that's annihilationism, extinction. Another view is reincarnation. This is popular in different Eastern religions. The idea of reincarnation, if you don't know, is that you continue to live a series of lives. Like when you die, you come back around as another person, but that other person is somehow related to what you've done in the past. So basically, if you've done bad in your past life, relatively speaking, as you come back as a new person, you're going to experience pain and suffering as punishment or judgment for what you did in a previous life. Um, by contrast, if you, if you lived a pretty good life, you come back around with relative blessing. And there's this series of things that you come around and come around and come around based on karma. 
the biblical view, but it's, it's beyond the biblical view, is this third view that is, is you go on to an eternal life of either reward or some kind of judgment. Um, this is the more common belief of Western cultures. Most Western people, most modern people, do not believe in reincarnation or, or exten- extinction. Most of us just have a sense of like there's something more than this brief temporal life. There's got to be something more. Because for so many of us, life doesn't make any sense if this is all there is. This is where terms like heaven and hell come about in many religions, or the idea of heaven and hell, that what you did in this life will lead to some kind of future either good for you or bad for you, okay? One variation of this is called universalism. This is the idea that there is an eternity for everyone, and that eternity is good, that if there is a God... He is just a benevolent God who overlooks and or forgives or whatever everything you've ever done and everyone automatically goes to heaven, paradise, bliss, whatever it is, okay? Um, Another variation is the Catholic view, which is that there's also purgatory. So if you don't know, Catholics in their official doctrine would say, if, if you're walking in a relationship with God and that relationship is good and you've confessed your sin, when you die, you go to heaven, If you're not walking in faith with God, you don't trust in Jesus. When you die, you go to hell. If you die trusting in Jesus, but you have unconfessed sin, you go to a third place called purgatory, where I guess a recent pope said um, he thinks the average time in purgatory for good people is about a thousand years, um, where you're in pain and suffering, and you're atoning for your own, own unconfessed sin. And fortunately, like you have people on this side that are still alive that can go to mass and they can pay alms and they can pray for you and that speeds up your time in purgatory. The Christian view is that at the end of time as we understand it, there's a divine judge, Jesus Christ, who comes back to this earth and he makes a separation between those who trusted in him in this life and those who did not. In Jesus' own words, in Matthew 25, he says, the unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And I think it's important to remember that Jesus talked about this. This is not just like an old covenant doctrine of like heaven and hell. Um, Jesus, the most compassionate person who ever lived and the son of God said, there is this place. And he says, actually broad is the way that leads there. But I want you to hear in in the biblical account of where we go, note that people don't just cease to exist. There is no second or third chance to kind of come around and come around and come around and make, make, make atonement to improve your status. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There's also no third place in the biblical accounting of things to atone for your own sins. By the way, that's not bad news, that's good news, because in the biblical accounting of things, if you know... Jesus says, I atone for all your sins. I atone for the ones that you remembered and you confessed. And I remembered as you you trusted in me, I atone for the ones that you forgot all about or you didn't even realize at the time that you were doing something wrong. Jesus has covered it all. As you place your faith in him, you are covered, you are good. There There is no purgatory, okay? But I also wanna note something important. As Jesus says, the unrighteous go here and the righteous go here, and there's a division between unrighteous and righteous, that term righteous in Scripture is, is a godly person who lives by faith. 
So righteousness in Scripture, there is a conformity to the will of God. That's what the word righteous means. But as Jesus often speaks of it, it's not a person who throughout the course of life was perfect and never sinned because that person doesn't exist. The righteous person is the one who recognizes my life has fallen short of the standard. So I confess that and I put my trust and my hope in Jesus, that he has paid the price. He has covered my sin and I am free, I am forgiven, I am rescued in him. Now, what will it be like? What will we be like specifically? And again, I'll give you three views. Um, one idea is that, that forever, and now I'm, I'm, I'm dropping the extinction part that you just go in the ground and you're, you're dead, you're gone. There is no you. Um, most people believe you go on and on and on in some state, in some nature, in some condition forever. Many people believe you do that as a disembodied soul. There's just a, there's a material part of you that goes in the ground and dissolves, goes back to dust. And, and Genesis 3 says that, right? When God is passing this curse on sin, he says, you have come from dust and to dust you shall return. And Solomon even speaks of this distinction in Ecclesiastes 12, 7. He says, the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Okay, so it sounds like, so if the body is temporal and the, the soul or the spirit, the immaterial parts of you are eternal, like are we just floating around, like almost like ghosts or spirits, like forever, and many people hold to this view. A group that holds to this view, for example, is a group called the Gnostics. Christians believe Gnosticism is a heresy, okay, just so you know. Um, Gnostics in the like early around the time of the early Christian church, would say, essentially, the body, the flesh, physical matter is, is broken and it's inherently bad somehow. But those, those uh, immaterial parts of you, those are good. And redemption will look like God at the end of time separating that bad, horrible, diseased, poisoned, sinful matter and just letting you be this ethereal spirit, free from the chains of the body. Okay, that is not what the Bible teaches, is this idea of a disembodied soul. The Bible doesn't teach the rejection of the body, rather it teaches the restoration or the redemption of the body. So that leads to two other views. One is that we're just a resuscitated body and soul. Um, this is what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, by the way. When he raised someone from the dead, like that little girl who died before he got to her, and he's like, oh, she's just sleeping, takes her hand, says, little girl, arise. Or when he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, who's been dead a couple days, Jesus is basically resuscitating them and healing the condition that led to their physical death in the first place. But that little girl and Lazarus and others like them went on to die after that, okay? Um, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 50 it says like that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God so there's something true there that we're not simply a resuscitated body like a little bit better and and, and then then alive again version of ourselves um, if you would I want to read a second passage this morning it's in first Corinthians 15 I commend this entire chapter to you because it is like the resurrection chapter you know first Corinthians 13 is like the love chapter this is all about a New Testament and a, an apostolic early church view of like what happens to us when we die. And it's very important. I, I want you to read the whole thing. Um, but I'm going to begin in just verse 50 and read a few verses here. 
This is Paul, the Apostle Paul. He says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, and that's, that's a word that's like, look, look, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must must put on an imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written and this is from Isaiah So it's like, that prophecy now comes true. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of sin, or the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to note that what Paul is saying, what the Spirit is giving Paul to deliver to the church for all ages, is you're not simply resuscitated brought back in that old body, you get a new body. And notice there's some continuity and some discontinuity to what came before. Like, you're the same person. And I think there's still going to be this amazing diversity in heaven, like different skin colors and hair colors and eye colors, because God has redeemed people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Okay? And we're going to go on and on forever. But we're not raised as this, like, army of clones. And I always picture, like, Star Wars of just, like, all these clones, everybody looks alike and they have their marching orders from the, the, the grand poobah and they just do their thing. There's nothing like that in, in heaven. There's a continuity to who you are now, but there's also a discontinuity because God has given you a new body, a body that transcends the ability to wear down and to die. By the way, the first glimpse of that resurrection body is Jesus himself. Um, we would read earlier in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all who have fallen asleep. And that firstfruits term is important because like, if you like gardening and you're planting stuff around this time of year and you start to get those first like cherry tomatoes or green peppers or strawberries or whatever it is, when you see that fruit appear on the plant, even if you didn't know what that plant was before, you know more strawberries are going to come from the strawberry thing. They're going to look like that first. They're going to have the same nature, the same DNA, as it were, as the original. And you notice that continuity and discontinuity with Jesus' resurrected body. Like when he comes out of the tomb on Easter morning and he sees the disciples, they can recognize him. He still looks like the person that he was. He still has the scars from the cross. That's part of how he gets them to believe in him. He's like, look, see my hands, see my side. I'm, I'm still wounded forever for you, but, but forever healed. And there's this discontinuity of Jesus like appearing in locked rooms. Like that's going to be fun, you know, to have that part of your nature. What are we doing? Like walking through walls or teleporting or I don't know. But the point is, this isn't the same body that went in the ground. It's, it's a unique, eternal creative act of God that we go on and on forever as a resurrected, restored body and soul. Now, how does the story end? Question three. Let me just give you three things, and I'm, I'm, I'm now dropping like alternate views. I'm just kind of charging forward on this is how the scripture tells the story. How does the story end? Number one, and there, there are three things I'm going to give you here. This is not comprehensive of certainly like the book of Revelation, because I don't understand most of it. Um, 
But here are three things I do understand, okay? Number one, the author of life will defeat death. And I said this last week, and we need to remember this as part of our Christian worldview, that pain and suffering and entropy and death are intruders in the story that God is writing. They're enemies in the story that God is writing. They are not meant to be there, and they will not forever be there. Okay, they've entered the story through sin, but, but 1 Corinthians 15 again, verses 25 and 26 says, for he, Jesus Christ, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I read these verses from 40, uh, 15, 54 through 57 of just, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Christ, in fact, has been victorious over you. And notice this interesting phrase where he says, the sting of death is sin. The sting is sin. Sin stings. Okay? Have you ever been stung by a wasp or a scorpion? The idea here is sin stings you, and it pumps this venom into your life. It's a toxin. Sin is killing us. Sin will kill us. But that's only half the story, that that sin has pumped this venom into us, and it's separated us from God, because the other half of the story is that Jesus, as we sang about this morning, takes on this flesh, and he comes to this earth, and he says, let your sin, let that venom be pumped into me. Like, let me take the deadly poison of what you've done. Put it, put it into me. And Jesus dies, and Jesus rises from the dead. And then, like, we're going to celebrate here shortly. Like, his blood has covered us. And I just, I don't know that this is good theology, but you shouldn't say that. because I don't know that this is good theology, but um, bear with me. This is an illustration. I'm not saying this is exactly how it happens. If Jesus takes the deadly venom into himself and dies and rises from the dead, and is like, here is my blood for you. Well, how do we live and not die when we are bitten by a rattlesnake or something more venomous? It's because that, that venom itself, like it's probably been in someone's blood, has been centrifuged, has been put into a form that it is the antibody that fights back and gives us life instead of death. This is what Jesus has done for us, the author of life, defeating death. These enemies, these intruders are defeated in the end. Secondly, the creator will restore his creation because our lives, our lives, our souls, our bodies are not the only thing that's marred by sin and the curse of sin. Okay, in, 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 uh, in Genesis 3, God tells Adam and Eve as part of the curse, like this is going to, like seep into the ground, as it were, and everything's going to be touched by the curse. These thorns and thistles that come up, and the way the earth pushes back against you and seeks to destroy you. And in Romans 8, Paul says, the, the entire creation is in bondage to decay. It's groaning with futility. All of creation is longing for the day when Christ returns to make everything new. And contrary the Gnostics, This earth and the physical matter is not inherently bad. And part of this new creation is that we get matter, like physical matter again, 
but in a new form, kind of like our body. So Isaiah 65, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 21 that, that Edith read all speak of a new heavens and a new earth. In the final chapter of the Bible, we read about this, this final form, this perfect garden city called the New Jerusalem coming down to earth. And that picture is that heaven and earth are no longer separated by our sin. There's no longer this distance, this divide. But he's like, this, this garden city, this perfect, beautiful city, it's called the holy city. It's replacing the Jerusalem that's broken. He's like, it comes to earth. It's, it's replacing the garden of Eden where things broke. And now he's like, I'm restoring all things. And heaven and earth come together. I always love pointing out, not around Christmas time, these words from joy to the world that say, he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. He's not just coming to evacuate Christian souls from this earth and just burn everything up and be like, yay, we're in heaven forever. You know heaven comes down to this new earth. And it says kings and kings and princes and nations come in and out of these gates that never close. And there's this perfect culture, every square inch recreated as God's masterpiece, beautiful in design and function. Satan doesn't get one square inch. This is the end of the story. The creator will restore everything. Behold, I make all things new. And then finally under like what happens, the lamb who died for you will be with you forever. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, for the Lord himself, Lord, there is Jesus Christ, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, with Jesus. Okay. And um, we, we read this part earlier, but you're not going to remember, but look at verse 3 of Revelation 21 if you're still there. This is what the loud voice says. This is what the loud voice, this is like, this is what I want everyone to know. What? Behold, again, look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And I want to point out in the big context of this story, at the very beginning of created time, human life, a universe. The picture was God's people living in God's place, doing relationship with God, like loving him, pursuing him. And a lot of stuff messes that up in the middle, but, but the end of the story is this restoration. It's God's people living in God's place under his rule, under his authority, but, but loving in relationship with him. And that goes on and on forever. By the way, hell is hell because God isn't there. And maybe even for some of you, the, the God that you didn't think you wanted to be a part of your present life, it will be hell because he's not there forever. And heaven is heaven not because of pearly gates and angels and wings and, God forbid, harps, but, but because God is there. And I love like, just reading through the book of Revelation and being like, wait, what, what God is there? And he's like, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Like the light of the world, the fountain of living water. 
the true temple. Did you, did you catch that? And it, like, if you read more around 21, 22 of Revelation, it's like there is no temple. Why? Because God himself is there. He is the temple. Like, what did, what did the temple point to? That unholy people, broken people, can't just rush into the presence of a perfectly holy God. So God condescended to make this building, this space of like, you can come through this animal slain for your sins and sacrifice to, to cover so you can approach God in prayer and cry out to him. But, but now there's no physical structure, not in Jerusalem, not anywhere, because Christ himself just says, come. You come to the Father through me. There is no other mediator. There is no other building. There is no other space that you need to go to. God is with us forever. The last chapter that goes on and on forever is the garden city where God dwells in perfect love, perfect justice, perfect shalom with those who love him. And so, so what? Last point. So what? Because I, I don't want this to be like, oh, cool, that's a good story. I love the way that story ends. And I do. So what? How does that impact today, the way you're living right now? Three things. First, live expectantly. Saying I think Christians should be the most hope-filled people. Um, This is part of what we said last week about pain. Do you remember the word we gave you for the type of psalm, the type of prayer, the type of song that you can sing, the type of prayer you can pray? Lament. And a lament is crying out honestly to God, this hurts, this seems unfair, I'm angry, I'm scared. Why did the wicked seem to prosper? Why is my life so hard? Why is it filled with pain and disease and misfortune? And what do I do with that? I hope in you. And we ought to be the most hope-filled people because we realize, yes, our lives are filled with pain and suffering and brokenness, and it's everywhere we turn. And we see people calling evil good and good evil, and it's frustrating. And all these things are true, but it won't always be this way. Nor will the whole earth simply vanish. See, we steward our lives in hope. And we steward this earth in hope. Because we know Christ is coming back here. He's bringing heaven back to this fully restored new earth. And the scripture itself uses this beautiful metaphor of like putting a seed in the ground. And that seed dies. And you don't just walk away from the seed like, well, it's dead. Because what happens when the seed dies and the husk falls off? Is there's a new life that comes out of it. And there's continuity. You know, you put, like, I don't know, tomato seeds in the ground, you get a tomato plant. There's a continuity, but there's discontinuity. This doesn't look like a seed, a dead, dying, rotting thing in the ground. This is, this is a plant with fruit. And we plant and we work in hope, okay? Live expectantly. Number two, live faithfully. Because knowing this is your destiny by hope in Jesus Like, doesn't it spur you on to, like, want to live the kind of life that he's asked us to live, that he's enabled us to live? It's not like a a, a condescending or moralistic thing of just, like, well, I have to do this for God. It's like, no, I I get to see him one day, that the... The lamb who calms and sheds his blood and takes the venom of my sin and takes the death that I deserve. So, and, and by the way, this term was in what Edith read. There's a first death, which is your physical death, and we all experience a physical death. We will. But the second death is that separation from God. 
And family, if you don't know, Jesus came to this earth, the Son of God came to this earth and paid the price so that you never, ever have to experience a second death. You never have to be separated. Um, I, I think sometimes we as Christians can be like, well, I want to be faithful, but it's like, you notice how like no one sees your faithfulness? No one seems to care. And when I look at the end of the story, I'm like, wait, God sees. God cares. This honors God. Jesus told a couple different parables about giving different ones different talents and resources to work with. And what does he say? Go be faithful with them. And with that talent, you may make 10 talents or five talents or two talents or one. I don't care what your return is on the investment because in a sense, he controls that return and you don't. But he's like, but invest it. It's part of living faithfully. It's part of living hopefully. Um, how about your work? I mean, your, both your vocational career work, like your job, and I mean all the other work that you do, which may be most of the work that you do outside your vocation. Like, doesn't it bring a sense of joy to know I'm ultimately working for this God who tells this end of the story? I'm not just working for the man. I'm not just working for money. I'm not just working for the next promotion. I'm working for this God. And, and I want to create knowing that my good endeavors will live on somewhere forever. See, see the writer, the, Bertrand Russell's wrong. This, like this art that you produce and all this, these things, they don't just like all burn up and it's like, oh, all the good I did for everyone is just gone. There's nothing. And Christ is like, no, I, in, I incorporated in this new creation. Um, read Leaf by Niggle. Leaf by Niggle. Um, an interesting short story about the artist that was trying to paint the perfect tree and he never got beyond one leaf because he kept trying to just conceptualize like what this tree should look like. And he just, he was frozen in his work and like, what is the meaning of this? How does this live on forever? And it's, it says he like steps into heaven and he's like, that's the tree. Like that's the tree I was trying to paint. And there's the leaf that I did paint. And I think our work is more like that. Thomas Nagel is a uh, famous philosopher and a, a professor at NYU. He says, even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read for thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will wind down and collapse and all trace of your effort will vanish. The problem is that although there are justifications for most, most things big and small that we do with in life, none of these explanations explain the point of your life as a whole. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed and after you have gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. That's a lot of despair. And I'm thankful that I can stand here and preach on the authority of God's word. He is dead wrong. One, your life matters. Your life matters. Not, not life. Your life matters. Your work matters. The point, he's like, we, we can't even tell the point of life. Well, well we can. We, we talked about it. The point of life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And, you know, your death can't end that. It can only, as, as Keller just said, as Tim Keller passes away, and it's like the only thing death can do to a Christian is make everything better. Because you go on and your work goes on. You don't go out of existence. And I think God does something like with Niggle's little leaf to say, you started, you tried, 
you invested, good for you. Here's what I did with your work. With this point of faithfulness, I don't want to miss the opportunity to urge you to another kind of faithfulness, and that's faithfulness in witness, bearing witness to Jesus Christ, because family, every single person that you meet is an eternal soul. Okay, we, we have ways of dividing up people and arguing that these people are bad and we hate them. And it's horrible because every single person you meet is an eternal soul. And again, Jesus said, the way to judgment is broad. There's a way that seems right to humankind and it leads to death. People get angry when I talk about heaven and hell. And they're like, how can you say that some people go to hell? How can you say that... That, that I don't go to heaven because I don't believe what you to believe. And one of my questions often is, well, what do you think heaven is? This is a serious question. Like, what do you think heaven is? According to scripture, heaven is this eternal place that's come down to earth, and it's for people who treasure Christ. Like, like seriously, I'm not trying to be funny, but if you don't treasure Christ, you're not going to enjoy it because it's all about him. It's not about me. It's not about you. Now, now we get amazing, I think infinite joy because life is about him. And now that we're perfected and we're with him, it's like this is the story. This is the narrative that my soul has craved forever. And so my point is like when we bear witness to Jesus, when we invite people to put their trust in Jesus, it's not like, well, we're doing that because we think we're better than you. We don't. We don't. Most of you don't. We're not doing it to like bludgeon people with the Bible. We're doing it because we're like, I believe I've found infinite joy. We're all putting our faith in something. There are basically three options, extinction, reincarnation, or something like the Bible story. Whatever you believe, you accept it by faith because we're not talking to the dead. Which story do you accept by faith? Which one are you allowing to transform your life? So live faithfully in character, in work, in witness. Finally, live generously. Live generously with all of your resources, your money, your time, your talents that God has given you. Honestly, what have you got to lose? If you live on and on and on, you've got 80 or 90 years Congratulations, you lived a long life on this broken, painful earth, and maybe you die a multimillionaire. Do you know that the moment you die in Christ, you, your, your time on this earth and, and your minuscule dot of wealth will be like nothing in light of eternity and in light of your inheritance with Christ? Like you can hoard your money or you can invest your money in kingdom work, but when you get to heaven, you're going to be like, dang, why did I, why was I so selfish? Like, holy smokes, all this is mine in Christ. All this is mine and yours and yours and yours. Like, why are we hanging so tightly to our time? It's my time. It's not your time. And Jesus urges every one of us to invest and invest and invest and be like one of our cultural values of this church. And when you go through the new member stuff, you hear it is to be crazy generous. Now, great, work hard. Provide for your family. Have fun. That's a blessing of God to give you money to enjoy. I'm not saying that. But, but even as you invest in personal investments, 
there are ways to leverage those for greater generosity in the long term and to live a life like leaving something to your children and your children's children, as Bible says, but just, I mean, I want to be a church where people just look at, they're like, those people are crazy generous with their time. They're just giving stuff away. It's like they believe that they're going to live forever with a God who gives them everything. Because we do. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord God has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation.